Gavin Woods Countdown Podcast, proudly brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Andrew Farris, and you're listening to Gavin Wood and me on Countdown Podcast. And welcome to the Gavin Wood Countdown Podcast. It is a pleasure to speak to one of the icons in the music business. Now, this band sold 50 million copies of their albums. Just remember, worldwide, 50 million copies. And the main songwriter behind all that is Andrew Farris from In Excess. Andrew, hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, how are you, Gavin? Mate, fine. I want to talk about your new career, because I think it's it's really exciting, and I love the album, but we've got to talk about In Excess and, and the success that the band had. Mm. I know you'll get embarrassed about this, but one World Music Award, five MTV Awards, two Brit Awards, six ARIA Awards, six APRA Awards, five ARIA Awards, six ASCAP Awards, and 11 Countdown Awards. You must have a big cabinet at home with all those awards in it. <laughs> yeah, I display some of them. You know, I'm, I'm very proud of those awards. And, you know, Absolutely. Some of the more recent awards that I've received have also been since In Excess stopped touring and, and we stopped recording together. Uh, also, some of the, the ones I treasure the most, which is uh, an Order of Australia. They gave me an AM uh earlier this year and watered me, I should say. Wow. Congratulations, man. That's great. Yeah, thank you. And and I think an order of Australia is something you keep earning. It's something that you... Once you've been presented something like that, I don't take it lightly at all as an Australian, and I think to myself, I'm very fortunate to have this, and I need to earn it. It's one thing to get given something or presented something, but the meaning of it is changing a lot as it goes along to me where I, I'm, I, I'm proud to be an Australian. I'm proud to have done the things that have represented Australia and to Australians who aren't as fortunate as I am. Yeah. You know, and other awards too. I just got presented a CSAC award, which is a publishing award out of the United States, out of Nashville, for being part of the writing, uh, co-writing for Dua Lipa's, you know, uh, Break my heart, uh, which wow, yeah, which is massive, uh, and that was yes. a big a big deal for me personally because it was it was really an award they gave to me, um, yeah, uh, you know, and, and but I love my NXS awards, and I know you want to talk about the band. I, I I love NXS, I love the music, and I'm very, you know, I, I'm I had an amazing experience with those people, and I was very fortunate as a songwriter and obviously a performing musician, but as a songwriter, to to have a platform with such a talented band and such an awesome lead singer as Michael was uh, extraordinary, you know, and I was very fortunate. I love to talk to songwriters because I like to know their process. Now, is it the, uh, is it the words first or the music bed first? I, I've worked in all kinds of different ways, Gavin. Um, like, over the years, uh, you know, I've been really sort of songwriting since I was in my mid-teens. I... I didn't even know I was songwriting. I just was experimenting with music and lyrics. I didn't even know what I was doing. I'm not sure I still really do. Yeah. But anyway, um, but it, it was really more to do with the, you know, the chicken or the egg thing as a songwriter. I think it's more to do with how I feel at the time. Like if I get inspired by a lyric, then I'll follow that through and I'll, I'll think of the thematic music that would suit a lyric or the other way around. If I'm working with music first, it might be, you know, it might be just chords, it might be mm -hmm. a, a riff, it might be 
you know, a, a feel, a groove, or whatever, and that's pretty much how I've always done it. I, it depends how I feel, and that's you know, if I'm enjoying it, if I'm enjoying writing a song, the way I look at it is sometimes I find that people enjoy that too because they can hear that I enjoy the song. Mm. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but it's it's true. Like if you if anyone out there writes songs themselves and they know that when they they've got their friends and family listening to something they've written, and some songs appeal more than others, it's usually in my, my experience isn't so much a, it's not a scientific head thing, it's got to do with how you feel. If you feel good, then it, or you feel sad, or you feel some mm. emotion, if you expressed it well mm. in a song, it usually translates right. that way. Now, do you go to sleep with a pad and a pen beside your bed? Basically, not really, no. I, I mean, I, I do have ideas, you know, um, that sometimes I, I wake up thinking about ideas for songs, but I, I've also learned to be kind of a, I don't know, self-discipline with it all. And, you know, when I actually decide to write, sit down and write, I'm fairly pragmatic about it. Like, I right. I may not even have anything to write or I don't, I don't, sometimes I'll just make something up when I'm sitting yeah. there. Yeah. And later on, I'll listen to it and think, maybe do I like this or do I not like this? Or is this, you know, is it crap right. or is it okay? You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I've sort of learnt one major thing I've learnt over many years of being a songwriter is not to discard the work that I've done. I don't erase it. I just, I store it and I, yeah, and I revisit good. it later on. And that's proved a very, very important friend to me. I think that happened to Don Felder. Remember the, the intro to Hotel California? Sure. He had that on an old tape and, and he went back and revisited it and then worked on it and it became Hotel California. So it, it works, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that's a very clever chord structure that one that Don Felder wrote and I've thought that I'm sure that's occurred to other writers as well is that it, it's kind of like an Escher drawing or painting because mm. it circulates if I can call it that as a chord progression it just goes round and round and round it sort of never really resolves and very clever yeah. it's a, very yeah. well written actually yeah now let's go right back to the early days you said you started writing songs early in the piece and you didn't realize you were writing songs but uh did you and tim and john you know jam at home when you were kids when you were at school uh later on we did uh when we were little kids we of course were, well we were born the three of us or well, four and my sister, younger sister later on but the three mm. of us were born in perth um in western australia i was born in 1959 and uh, I was five years old, and my older brother Tim was seven. My younger brother John was would have been three and then something. Uh -huh. And our sister wasn't born. And my dad, my father Dennis, uh, was originally from London, and my mother Jewel was originally from from Western Australia, uh, seventh generation or whatever Aussie. And Dad had wanted us to go back. He hadn't been back to London for fifteen years. Right. Uh, he came out after World War Two here um, to Australia and. He wanted to, us to meet his parents or our grandparents, so he put us on a ship because he wanted to go on by ship. And in those years, you didn't fly everywhere. You went by ship or you didn't go at all. Sure. Probably saw the Seekers or the Groove or Axiom or something uh, performing on the ship. <laughs> Probably. Um, I remember seeing a lot of drunk adults when we went across the, the Neptune's I'm, I'm sure. crossing you know, in the ocean. And that was interesting. Whereas oh, kids remember yeah. watching the swimming pool had um, like portholes right. where you could see through in the pool and you could see all these people jumping in and out of the pool. 
bizarre. Anyway, when we got to London, we went to a variety show and the Beatles played. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. <laughs> no. No, they played two songs. And then, so my brothers and I, that was the first band we saw. Gee. And then, and then that was 1964. I think it was before they went to the US. And then we came back, you know, on the slow boat or whatever we did, you mm -hmm. know, back to Australia, to, to Perth. And I think that right. influenced... Well, I know influence impacted all three of us, I think, but it's particularly my older brother and I. Um, and I think, you know, it, that influence really went on. Where And my uncle, this all happened around the same time. My uncle, when I was nine, about four years later, my uncle had moved, I think, by then to Sydney to, to, to follow these academic studies or whatever he was doing in finance. Mm -hmm. And um, I, he left his upright old bill 1950s upright piano with my mum and dad and so I learned to play piano as did my younger brother John and I used to spend hours and hours and hours you know playing piano and getting instructions and learning and all that stuff and lessons and exams and one day I said to mum I don't want to do this anymore I want to play footy I'm not really enjoying playing music because it's like <laughs> going to school you know you get exams and you know you have to you know and you're, sure. you're playing other people's music and 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 then I I had an accident. I hurt myself or something. Not playing footy. I actually jumped off a fence onto a onto a big nails out of a fence post thing. And so I was laid up for bed yeah, for a couple of days. And Mum said, "Did you want to learn the piano again?" And I said, "Yeah." Funnily enough, I was thinking about that, Mum. Uh, I wouldn't mind doing it, but this time, can I please get someone to teach me how to play chords? I don't just want to play, you know. Mary Had a Little Lamb and all this other stuff over and over, really? or, or, or yeah. you know, classical yeah. music. I didn't really want to do that. I want to play chords, and can someone teach me that? And she was like, what? You know, like, because it was a bit unusual, I guess, to ask for that. So she found a Japanese lady, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, mm. who used to sit with me for hours, and she showed me how harmony worked on the piano. And, and like, for example, if you have a C major okay. chord, then its relative minor is an A minor. And then I recognized that that worked all up and down the scales in all keys. And being pretty young, around about you know mm. 9 or 10, 11 or whatever it was, it really had a big impression on me because then I realized that all these rules and exams and all the rest of it weren't really about creativity. They're about structured what you know, you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. Then I realized a big sort of window opened for me when I realized that you can make up whatever you want um there are no rules and exams and if you want to create some music you just need to apply your own you know your own self to doing it and that really was huge for me because then by the time i was 13 14 15 i'd already taught myself how to play guitar and so i began to put all these skill sets together and that's really how i became a songwriter man that's incredible i mean once you realize that you can play play those chords on a pop song and how that's all structured, it all kind of falls into place, doesn't it? Well, that's right. And and then I realized that you begin, you know, anyone that's a songwriter that's listening to this out there or, you know, musically inclined would understand that you begin to see repetition in music. Like you, when you begin to play other people's songs, you begin to realize that there are certain movements like the first chord to the fourth chord to the fifth and back again, so forth and so on, you know those sort of movements are pretty stock standard and they're used over and over and over again. Mm. Um, and repetition, even including lyrics and melodies or whatever, you know, or hooks and riffs is another word that people use. Mm. You know, all those things are, are part of repetition and, and 
to have the repetition, you know, especially in pop music, is usually very important. Um, classical music, to a lesser degree, uh, or and jazz is almost, you know, uh, very little, unless it's sort of more pop jazz, mm. you know. So I don't know how to put it. Um, you know, commercial jazz. It they do the opposite. They deliberately try not to to play the same phrase twice. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives since 1934. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Hi, this is Andrew Farris, and you're listening to Gavin Wood and me on Countdown Podcast. Now, okay, so so you guys are in Perth. How did you get to Sydney and start forming a band? Yeah, um, Dad was one of six guys that came into uh, Australia from England originally, and they set up a, a company called Legal and General, and Dad was a branch manager in Perth, and then he got a job promotion to basically run the whole hang Australian... On, hang on, just, just stop there. They started up a company called Legal and General? Yeah, they, that's what they were sent as branch offices, yeah, out to them. That's, that's huge. Yeah, I know it's huge. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it goes. I tell people, and you're the first person that recognises that that it is actually over a really big thing. I agree with you. Man, and, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and I agree. And then Dad got a job promotion to, to a more senior position in Sydney in the in the CBD. Right. And so we all, we all moved as a little family from Perth, and around about 1970, 71, uh -huh. to Sydney, um, so Dad could further you know his career and. He, and what he was doing in assurance and insurance. And so that's why we moved. But along the way, you know, you've got to imagine in, in those years that, you know, um, I'd never even seen the Harbour Bridge before. I, I couldn't believe it when we drove over that. And and I also remember that we hadn't, we didn't know anybody, <laughs> you know. Yeah. We had no friends or mates or, or there was no next door neighbour that we knew or anything. And, you know, right. so we had to start again without, you know, with building friendships and relationships with people, and and um, consequently, that's how I met Michael Hutchins was by just by accident because you know I'd already started teenage bands, he hadn't, but we met, you know, and then he was curious about what I was doing. And he hadn't he hadn't sung at all uh, before that. No, he, he wasn't a singer. He was actually he was mostly interested in motorbikes when I met him. God love him. Yeah, and girls, I think. And also, I think he was also very interested in music later on. But at first, no, it was mainly motorbikes. And later on, he, it's a long story, but he moved to West Hollywood or somewhere there and went to North Hollywood High School. And hmm. he went there for a couple of years um, because his, his mother went there, I think, to work in the film industry. When he came back, to Sydney, we struck up a friendship again, and he changed a lot. I'd continued with my high school bands, and I was I was singing myself in my bands and still writing songs or whatever. And he came back, and he wasn't he didn't play an instrument or anything, but he was starting to talk about his poetry, and he used to write a lot of prose, you know. And back when you're in late high school, especially in that era, we're talking you know right. kind of mid to lateish seventies. It wasn't the, the the thing your mates did was talk about poetry. No, not really. They talk about it, cars and meat pies and girls and footy and beer and, and rugby league. Sure, and smoking cigarettes and you name it. But yeah. that's what it was like back then. Exactly, you know, forty. Mm. That's right. But when he came back, because I'd been in bands and I knew it was hard to write lyrics, and 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 especially when you know <laughs> when you're younger it's not that easy to write lyrics because you haven't lived long enough to write lyrics that really hit people. 
Of course. Because you don't know much because you're young, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes that's good. But mostly it works against you because you don't understand the parallels or even understand adult radio, for example. So all that aside, he used to come along and watch my bands, and then one day we were sitting around together and I suggested he try singing something that I was working on. Mm. And he did. And then, uh, you know, it sort of went on from there. He became more confident with that. But he, he never played an instrument. It was really, that was his instrument, was his, you know, he was really a lyricist before he was a singer. And I think that shows in his lyrics. And he's, Mark was a great lyric writer. Mm. Um, I think I'm an okay lyric writer. I think he was a great lyric writer. And I think the two of us together, though, we had sort of diametrically opposed skill sets. We both kind of needed each other on that level. Where Yeah, yeah you were the f- songwriting force together, weren't you? Well, I think so. Yeah, and I think that history's yeah. kind of proved that a bit for the two of us. And I think it was Absolutely. interesting too because that led me on a journey that I, I I can't believe, like you were talking about awards and all the rest of it. But to me, it's not so much about awards, it's the fact that we we achieve something together that we set out to do. Man, you conquered that the world. Me. Come on, don't don't, yeah, don't well, sit no, back. No, you did. Yeah, you, no, you, yeah, Indeed. nobody really conquers the world, Gavin. Uh, I think what happens is you just do the best you can with what you have at the time. I think the world conquers us in the end, but I think that's my philosophical view on it. But what I'm really trying to say is, to me, they are my mates and my brothers, and we did something together. And to me, that is the award, is that... Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's, a, brother, a, it's like, a brotherhood. Well, it's a bit like playing sport. When you walk out there on that field, Yeah, you've only got the people to rely on and, and they rely on you and you rely on them well mm. it's a very similar feeling in a band if you work together properly yeah so tell me where did uh, Gary Gary Beers and Kirk Pengilly come along I already knew Gary through contacts from school bands and whatever and Gary had a car and that's a big deal uh, when you're in your late teens uh, yes when you're that Oh, I, I remember that. We had a road manager when I was in a band because he had a Falcon. Yeah, it was right. great. It's really serious stuff, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it especially, is. you know, in, this is in, in an era, and I'm sure you're talking about this era too, there's a lot more wealthy Australians mm. now than there used to be, um, in my opinion. And mm. people have come mm. back from mm. overseas. Maybe they've been expats or whatever, and they bring the money back with them. But it's something that I noticed in, as a big cultural change and sure there's a lot of people who are very badly off in Australia as well and for all the wrong reasons mm. Um, mm. you know yep. uh, but, but and I, my heart soul goes out to them but I think in the era we live in now you often see mummy and daddy giving expensive gifts to their, their children well that wasn't the case when we were that age it was very no, different it was a different era totally different, different era, era and people just didn't have a lot of yeah. money to throw around and so someone yeah. with a car was like, wow, you know. Um, <laughs> and and so, you know, but Gary was a good bass player too, and he's a good guy. And, you know, I mm. think somehow Michael and Gary and I ended up in a band somehow together before the Farris brothers even got together. Uh-huh, and, right. Yeah, and, you know, and then my elder brother, I think, Tim, watched what we were doing in our band, and I think he thought we were pretty good, especially with the combination with our songs and what we were doing. So he suggested that we have a jam with my younger brother, John, and Kirk, who was Tim's mate, came along, and that right. was how the Farris Brothers, or in excess, was born. Wow. That's a great story, man. I love it. 
And then uh, you were gigging and Gary Morris, who was managing Midnight Oil, saw you. And then the, the pathway started to form. Yeah, I mean, I've often, you know, I don't know if Gary ever will hear me say this, but I'd like to thank him because, uh, you know, I think he he and Midnight Oil and the Angels and a few other people were good to us when we were starting out as a band. Sam and Colchers, a lot of these guys were, you know, they could tell we were a little bit different. We didn't play a lot of, well, what, what was then kind of a lot of eights kind of uh, rock. We didn't always do that. We put funk stuff in. Um, which was really yeah, like from yeah. outer space compared to what most people were doing in Australia in those years. It was like we were experimenting all the time with that. But we'd go into pubs and people would be staring at us like, "What? What are you doing? We want to hear, we want to hear eights and heavy guitars, and you know, we don't want to hear all this wimpy, funky yeah. stuff." You know. Um, but boy, look at it. But you, but but you were playing, you were playing your own. Yeah, music. we we always did. That's uh, you know that's something that in excess, yeah. you know, always did. We we championed. We were we, you know we were determined to to, to play our, our own music. And we we had to we had to play covers to survive. You know, to pay rent and and mm. put food on the table. We sure we played other people's music, but playing other people's songs, as any musician knows, also teaches you a lot because you learn skill sets you would never learn otherwise. You know. Yeah, sure, sure. Now, um, Chris Murphy came along and uh, took over your management. Sad about Chris. That was a that was a, a dark day in the music industry when he uh, passed. Yeah, it was. It really was, and I appreciate that. And I'm sure his family would too. And yeah, no, Chris was a tremendous support for the group, and he was a kind of a tough guy in one sense with us. And but then that was good for us because he was tough with other people too. Oh man, he he went into bat for you, and I I saw him in full flight at <laughs> Countdown, and and I sat back and said, I want him as a manager. He looks after his band. That's why I that's why I respected and loved him so much. Yeah, well that's right. I remember exactly exactly right. And you know, a word to anyone who manages anyone out there, I'll never forget. In my career experience, you know, it wasn't that long ago sitting around at one of these awards nights and there were some management people bragging about how their young act had been really successful and I said what are you doing to make sure that they have money in the, down the future and they just stared at me like I was crazy and I'm like yeah you know like mm -hmm. what are you actually doing for your artists to make sure that they can eat and pay the rent later on and they sort of they they looked at me like a <laughs> <laughs> like what are you talking about you know well that's what a good manager should do for, for an artist is to make sure that they're okay as people you know anyway um beyond career and money and all the rest of it you know the beautiful thing about your songwriting and michael's songwriting is that you look after the rest of the band that's why the band stayed together for so long you respected your players and you cut a percentage for the rest of the band and, and i think that's amazing yeah thanks no i appreciate i appreciate that you know, I think, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, but I also sort of, like I said before, I think we all helped each other at some point in life. And we still do when we, we when we have to, you know. But that's the way life works. But yeah, I'll just bring yeah. us forward a bit in time. And I'll say that a lot of the reason that I started my own career, so fairly late, if you like, of recording, is because I've always been a songwriter. And when... In excess, stopped touring and recording. I didn't stop songwriting, and I, I really didn't stop recording. I just didn't share it with anyone. And yeah, I, and a lot of my songwriting journey took me too because my wife's American, Marlena. She's from Dayton, Ohio, which is 
about five and a half hours drive, which is not far in Aussie terms, to Nashville. Mm. So we used to drive to Nashville and, and, you know, as tourists at first, and we met friends and I had professional acquaintances. And, and pretty soon I started songwriting with girls and guys there, different ages and different backgrounds. And pretty soon I suddenly discovered that I wasn't alone. And even though Michael had passed away, you know, there was plenty of other great writers out there. And so I started to share my and trust other writers around me and share good. my own work with them. Good, good, good. And that was good for me because then another big, huge window opened for me where I realized that it might just be possible for me to rekindle a fire in me, you know, and really get passionate about my writing again because I am working with all these people. And, you know, because they were particularly the Americans, I work with, you know, British people and Australians, obviously, but the difference with the Americans is they didn't, have any preconception or as much preconception as say Australians do for for good or for bad about an excess mm. or a background or whatever they didn't really care they were just like yeah no you know, you, no you got to you got to start again well, kind of, yeah but that I mean they knew who I was and they knew my they knew who an excess was definitely and they were fans of the band mm. but it just didn't have the same cultural impact as it when I'm talking to you and I'm in Australia with Australians it's a completely different thing so when I was it's in true. America it really helped me because I suddenly realized, you know, I can be whoever I want to be now. I don't have to be this or that and write this or that to suit whatever. Mm, mm. I can be whoever I want to be. And a lot of the writing that I was doing, both older songs that I'd written and newer songs, I started recording them in Nashville to get better sounding demos, you know, to sell them to other artists, mm. record companies or whatever. And during the recording process, it was kind of funny because I'd, I'd put my vocal singing aside because Michael was such a great singer and Kirk was a great singer too in the band, as was my brother John. But the thing is that I just never really had a lot of confidence in my own voice. And then one of the recording engineers said to me one day in Nashville, why don't you sing the songs? What, what, who, why are you writing for other people? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we like your voice. Just keep singing, you know. And I'm like, well, that's nice, thank you, you know. Thank and you. they didn't have to say that, you know. No. And so no. I, I did. <laughs> and as I kept singing my own songs, then I began to realise, hang on, you know, this, this stuff sounds okay, you know. I, I'm getting that sort of education and I'm getting, what's the word, support and encouragement from a source I never dreamed I would, especially as an older guy. And then as I went along, then something else very important happened to me that defined why I have a solo country sort of rock folk career now is Marlena and I took a horse riding adventure trip down along the Mexican border where Arizona and New Mexico meets the Mex Mexican border and we had some sort of became very good friends of ours a cowboy called Craig Lawson and his wife Tam and we started riding all through these wilderness areas down there on the Mexican border and uh, you know, you've got you, you, the history there is in, insane. You've got like Tombstone where the Cowboys and the, all that shootouts stuff was going on in the Wild West, and then you've got you know the Apache Indians. You've got the Mexican people, of course, across mm -hmm. the border. You've got the Mexican Army, you've got U.S. Cavalry, you've got the settlers, and this tumultuous history. And we're riding around looking at you know literally old abandoned U.S. Cavalry forts and old silver mine towns and abandoned whatever, and and. Uh, and it's all it's all rough. It's not like Disneyland. It's rough. We, we had to do it on horseback, and it was rough and ready. And 
we'd ride for hours at a time, take a break. And when I went back to Nashville, it was interesting because there's a lot of what I call urban country pop. Uh, you know, it's the big thing, you know, with a big spoon there that everyone's trying to stir to, to get a hit. Yeah, it's, it's kept, kind of it's kind of there's Americana, then there's urban country pop, and the, I still I, I still think they're trying to redefine Nashville or, or reinvigorate it or, or or get another angle to it to to make it more successful. Because you know I know how big country music is over there in the states. It's it's huge. Yeah, it's massive. It's huge. Yeah, yeah huge. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and but it wasn't that so much as it you know I. What happened to me was when I began to realize the cultural significance of that area to me and the grittiness of it and its history was, you know, so intense that, you know, I mean, I literally rode, you know, we, we rode our horses through Apache Pass. We, we rode horses up to Cochise's stronghold where he could see the U.S. Cavalry riding towards him. I know exactly where Geronimo surrendered to, to wow, the U.S. Cavalry. That's incredible. I, know, I know where his grandson is buried and all this kind Gee. of stuff. And, and the First Nations people, and I, I reflected on how really similar, and I'm not talking about country urban pop, but I'm talking about history, how similar Australia's early colonial pioneer days were with mm -hmm. bush rangers and your Ned Kellys and you know yep. Captain Thunderbolts and all the rest of it, and all those guys hooning around at gunpoint, and you sort of think, well, that's actually really similar, you know, pre-electricity, mm. really kind mm. of very similar. And because of that, then a light went off in my head when I went back to Nashville. You know, this idea came really strong in me that when they'd say to me, "Hey Andrew, you want to? Hey man, you want to write a song?" And I'd say, "Sure." And they say, "What do you want to write about?" And I was like, "Can we write about the Old West?" <laughs> and they'd stare at me like, "What? Are you nuts? You know, like that's not going <laughs> to get us a hit. You know, that's not a Taylor Swift song." Sure, whatever, whatever. You know, and I'd, I'd go like, "I don't care." That's what I want to do. Good. And, and, and so that's where it started my journey. That's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now is because I realized that, and then I began to tailor to write and go to other professional writers. I'd write myself on my own, but go to other professional writers and say, I want to write a song about this or that. You know? yeah. Yeah. And they'd be kind of like, well, this is different. And I'm like, good. I want to be different. Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934, Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Andrew Farris, and you're listening to Gavin Wood and me on Countdown Podcast. Well, I, I, I think you're on the right track because I, I love the, uh, the Son of a Gun clip, but uh, the new self-titled solo album, full of great gems like uh, Good Mama Bad, Love Makes the World, and uh, Run Baby Run, and now Son of a Gun uh, on YouTube... I nearly said YouTube then, uh, on, on YouTube, a great clip. And, and you look like a cowboy minister. Is, it, it, did you, is that what you set out to be with that white collar or was that just a white collar that you had on? Well, actually, if you know, I, I researched all the clothes that, uh, that the people used to wear traditionally in that era, yeah, uh, yeah. pre-electricity. And if you do a lot of research, you'll realize that back then the collars didn't have the turned up sort of businessman shirt that everyone wears today. Right. Probably since the 1950s, really. Right. You know, or even earlier, the 1930s, I suppose. But getting backwards in time, they didn't have the turned over collar. It was just like a literally the preacher's collar. And yeah. 
that was the style of, of clothes that most men wore, at least in the Old West they did. And I thought that was pretty cool. And in fact, a lot of 19th century clothing to me is pretty hip looking. And the reason I think it's particularly funky looking is because most of it was designed for practicality. And by that, what I mean is the old oil skins that the cowboys or dryser bones, we call them in Australia, I suppose, but the old oil skins that they'd wear to cowboys were purpose designed to keep the rain and dust off them so when they got into town they could take it off and look half decent when they walked into a a building in town and keep the weather off them but all the other clothes they wear like for example the cowboy boots they weren't just designed you know to look fancy sure they might have been fancy but the reason was they became they came from cavalry they came from people who rode horses for the cavalry the same with australian you know for our light horse uh, you know, soldiers, they wore them. And the idea was to, to, to keep, you know, the, the stirrups and the leathers on the inside of your, your calf from rubbing your leg raw. Right, right, you know? gotcha, gotcha. And because everything was purpose-made with the clothes, to me, they look great because they're not fashion or they became fashionable, but they were really there for practical reasons. And, and, and the wider brim cowboy hat as well to keep the rain off you. I mean, those hats Those hats are really cool. Yeah, I agree, and they're expensive too, but they, they, I don't think they had sunblock back then, Gavin, uh, so it's another reason why they, were, they, didn't, they didn't curl up the edges because they didn't have any sunblock. You know? And it was bloody hot. Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and the other thing is, too, that they would often wear a leather chin strap, you know, um, yeah. you know firmly secured to that flat brim hat so they could... When when it was colder and they wanted good, you know, they didn't need the hat on. They just flipped the hat off and they'd ride on the back of them. Everything that were the like clothes, a gringo. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and but what I'm trying to say is that it was also Marlena who helped me a lot with the. You were talking about the video for Son of a Gun. In fact, all the videos yeah. that we shot with a the cowboy theme, and yeah. we released also a song uh, and a video called Apache Pass at exactly the same time as we did Son of a Gun. That uh-huh. video was also uh, like Son of a Gun. Part of Son of a Gun was shot in Arizona, in the area we used to ride through. But Apache Pass is all shot in that area in Arizona. The video we made. Yeah, look, I, I was a bit, uh, I was a bit confused uh, as to the uh, the shed that you're in. I thought it was a sheep shed, and I thought, no, hang on, this this looks a bit American. Um, so, so where was the shed that you uh, filmed Son of a Gun in? Was it Arizona? <laughs> yeah, it was on a neighbor's property. It was a, it's their um, and yeah, we we put some cow skulls and stuff around it because I, I I live out in the bush. I don't I don't live on our beautiful coastline or in our wonderful cities. I live out in the bush and and so those sort of it was a sheep shed, was it? Yeah, yeah, shearing shed. And but yeah, but we 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 don't you know we don't think twice about it out here. These sort of things are, are dotted across the this you know landscape. Oh, known sure. As, yeah. Known as the Australian interior. Yeah. You know, no one's ever really dived right in and really, really uh, made it your own. And I, I think it's fantastic what you've done. Thank you. Yeah. No. I, I, at first, you know, I had people say <laughs> things to me like, "What are you doing there, mate?" People just want to hear about Utes, chicks, and beer. And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> yeah, but uh, a lot more's gone on than that." Yeah, you got a bit of substance now. <laughs> yeah, I like I like all three of those things. I do have a ute. I don't mind a beer, and I like girls. So you know, especially my wife. Yeah. So yeah, but you know, um, but I think when it came to to me 
recognizing this like one of the songs on my album is with the Kelly game you know and it's that outlaw country thing mm-hmm. that's part of my theme as well as it yeah you know what I mean like it's, yeah, it's, great. it's sort of I, I, I love mean, it yeah good well I'm glad I've, I've, I've well, I'm glad someone likes it it's good. <laughs> yeah. mate listen it's it's your creativity stick with it you've got to find your own pathway and I think your pathway that you're on now is just brilliant thank you yeah I'm um, I'll keep going with it. Yeah, well, I really appreciate that. And there's been a few people begin to say that to me because I think what I have done is a bit different. I don't think it's any better or worse than anybody, but it is a bit different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, speaking of uh, utes and all of that, I was speaking to Rick Springfield the other day and, and he bought a, uh, a EH, no, not an EH, an FJ Holden ute and he shipped it over to Malibu. And I said, wow. I said, what are you going to cart your, cart your wood around in the back? He said, no, I'm going to drive it into town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you were allowed to drive in the United States with, the, with your wheel on the other side. I know. I think you get away with it here. Like, although they don't let you get away with anything here anymore. No, but anyway, in America, mate, it's uh, you know the land of uh, yeah, I know. You know they can, they yeah. can do what they like. Now I've got it. I've got it. Well, that's because they have a First Amendment. But anyway, yeah. let's go on something too, else. Eh? Too many amendments. <laughs> so mm. I, I've, I've got to relate this one. This one story. I I was very fortunate enough to see your last show at the Wilson on Wilshire Boulevard. Oh, okay. Ca- yeah, I ca- wow. came backstage. Okay. I I was talking to all the boys. I didn't see you, but uh, but that was with uh, JD Fortune, and 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 that was the closest you could get to in excess. It was a great show. The crowd, you know what American crowds are like. They it they just went off, and it was just great to see. You know, from your early appearance on Countdown to international success, and then to finish it at the Wilson, and then I think uh, was it. Uh, was it Kirk told me that you'd just come from South America where you got held up at gunpoint because they stole your gate takings or something? Yeah, South America's always been interesting. Back in the old days, I think we were the, one of the first acts, international acts, in excess and Sting, to go down to South America. One of the shows we played at was in Buenos Aires at a big open football uh, stadium and 20,000 people came along and we were the headlining act and they'd had you know a terrible experience with the dictatorship prior to us turning up there right and you know uh, it was not long after the falklands war and all of that and i can remember i think it was 84 or something and i can remember that they were not used to being having a sense of freedom and being able to you know, protest or, or, or go nuts in the street because they, they'd come from a dictatorship. Sure. And we were trying to play this big outdoor show to 20,000 people. Well, they went nuts and kind of rioted with, you know, ecstasy of being able to... And everyone was just <clears throat> grabbing, you know, grass and dirt off the ground and throwing it up in the air, which is like this big brown haze because people were throwing dirt in the air and so excited and jumping around. And then the cops got really nervous and started hitting them all on the head. Next minute, there was this big riot and then I think Michael hit one of the cops with a um, his microphone stand because he was frustrated with it all and they didn't have crash barriers or whatever yeah you know next minute we were all pulled off stage you know and and you know I thought, I thought god this isn't good and someone American I think talked to them into letting us go back on so the crowd would come down again right which is very smart yeah which, yeah. which is what we did yeah. and then we somehow got out of there alive but i thought god i never want to go back there again but later on we did go back and we we spent a lot of time in south america in fact we were the 
In Excess was the first band uh, to play in the Armadillo Stadium in Mexico City since The Doors played there Holy in 1970. Wow. Yeah, and, yeah, and we were the first band. And and when we asked why, they said, well, because, you know, The Doors and other bands used to go down to Mexico and then exactly like Kirk was saying, these things would happen to them and, you know, money would disappear and, you know, you know, unpleasantness would occur and that, you know, they decided we'll just simply ban going to, you know, South America. But mm. we decided to, to actually take it on as a as, as a market. Beyond that, I, you know, there's many things about South America to me that are really fascinating. And culturally, you know, there, there, there's some amazing people there and, and skill sets and music and fashion and culture and some beautiful things, beautiful food and wine, mm. and, you mm. know. Oh, um, yeah. But it, but it's not without its difficulties, you know. Let's put it that way. Well, it's it, it's good that you got out of there in one piece, and you got to go to the Wilton and do that, to do that brilliant show. That's it. Yeah, thanks. Now, Andrew Farris, we have ten questions okay. that we ask at the end of each podcast. Uh, questions without notice. Uh, question number one: Who inspired you to make music? Ooh, um, I'd have to say probably. The Beatles. Um, Those two songs. Yeah, the two yeah. songs that, they, that the Beatles played when I, when I first saw them as a little kid. Yeah. And probably Slim Dusty and Johnny Cash, probably, a songwriter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Question number two, what have you learnt over your musical journey? Um, to trust in my instincts musically and to listen to other people. You know, their stories, their life, their ideas. I've learnt that, you know, sometimes when you, you know, you can be a bit bullish with other people, you hurt people and, and you don't learn anything. You need to listen to people's, you know, whether or not you take their opinion or advice or their, their philosophy is up to you. But you invariably along the way, you, you learn a lot. Question number three, what's the effect? What was the effect of Countdown to your career? It was big for an excess. Countdown was huge. Uh, Countdown was a very important cultural, it, it, sort of very hard to explain to, you know, to, 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 to this generation what it actually meant. But it was sort of like, kind of like a family-orientated YouTube that everyone sat down and watched on a Sunday or something. That's it? How good's that? That's brilliant. Thank you, mate. <laughs> yeah, I just defined it, did I? Yeah. yeah, you did. I love it. I love it. Um, what about rocking with the Royals? Wasn't that cool? Pretty insane, yeah. Uh, Melbourne, that's right. And in excess, played a headlined a, a, a sort of variety show, I guess, uh, a lineup uh, to um, Prince Charles and Lady Diana, and we got to meet them and talk to them. And uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. I remember what, talking to what Prince a Charles. It was, and it was quite an honour, you know. Now, if you could open up a show for any artist, who would it be? To me, I don't know. I, look, I, I'd be—I have to say, you know, I would thank any major artist for wanting to put me on their stage to support them. I'd really appreciate that. Anybody. Now, name three dinner guests, dead or alive. Well, I, I'd probably have to say my parents and Michael. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. Next question, uh, what's your favourite song to perform? Well, at the moment, Son of a Gun, because I got it out of the single and I shamelessly promote that, because uh, it's an awesome song. Of course, you know? you're a songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> you're a songwriter. It's, 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 the, it's the latest song. It's your best song. 
Of course, you know, yeah. you know, over the years, you know, I've been fortunate to have, like, I got to, I got to say that one of the songs is Never Tear Us Apart, and I got to thank Koshy, David Kosh, who championed it for Port Adelaide uh, AFL yeah. football team as their footy anthem. And I got to say, I was quite emotional to watch the footage we got sent when it first occurred and watch a whole stadium full of people singing a song that I had something to do with. And so did wow. Michael. It really, I found that very overwhelming a, in a nice way. That so, song also touched me with John Stevens at Flemington. Uh, did you see that clip? Yeah, I might have. Yeah, and I, I like John. I like John. John's a great guy. Great singer, my God. Mm. Yeah. You know, he, he, he's, he's one of the best ever, John. You love John and love, love his work, and I hope he's okay. He is. What's the, what's the most trouble you've ever gotten into, Andrew Farris? You don't have to answer it. You don't have to incriminate yourself. I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I'd have to sit down and think about that. I try to stay out of trouble. Okay. All right. Next question. If you could change anything about the music industry, what would you do? Um, I'd like to have more Australian content on Australian radio. Hallelujah. Yep. There should be. Like Rick Springfield's now started a, uh, an Aussie channel on Sirius XM over in the States. Has he? And playing Aussie songs. I said, good on you. That's great. Right. Well, when, when you're speaking to him next, can you tell him I said good day? I'd love to talk to him one day. And can he please play my songs on the radio? Yes, exactly. Now, second last question, Andrew. What's the uh, the best show that you've ever done? I probably have to say, just recently was at Lazy Bones in Sydney. We played a show there. Uh, my band played a show with me. That was great. It was a really good night. Yeah. Tell me the best in excess show you've ever done. I'd probably have to say either Rock and Rio in Rio de Janeiro. We played. How many people? I think it was about 150,000 people in that stadium. And there was. Wow. Our support bands were Billy Idol, Santana, and Joe Cocker. And Joe Cocker actually covered Never Tear Us Apart. And then, you know, but I tell you what, it's interesting uh, when you're trying to play guitar in front of Carlos Santana and he's watching you. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's a little intimidating. Yeah, just a little bit, yeah. Now, final question. What have you learnt, and what would you pass on to a young, hopeful songwriter-musician? Do a, a business degree of some sort, maybe a little bit of law and accounting first, if you're going to take it on seriously, and just be open-minded and, and ask questions. You know, look, look for advice and help from people. It's not an easy industry to survive in, but to make money out of and and to keep your money and there's sharks everywhere and it's a crazy industry. I mean, it's a great industry. It can be very exciting if you're successful, but it can also have its, you know, downsides too. Andrew Farris, continued success. And I can see it now. He's putting on his big black cowboy hat, hops on his horse with his posse and he rides off into the sunset singing his new song, Son of a Gun from his self-titled debut album. As Molly would say, do yourself a favour, get on YouTube, get into Andrew Farris because the cowboy thing is spectacular. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> Yeehaw! You're welcome. <laughs> oh, well done, buddy. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. All right, mate. Well, take care and, uh, you know, and just remember that to stay on the trail where the sunset meets the sky. Continued success, mate. Love your work. See you, bud. Bye. All right, mate. All the best. Take care.
Gavin Wood's Countdown podcast was thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.